going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to going deep with Donovan Bennett. That's right, it is the Going Deep podcast, and on this episode, we go deep on the PWHL. That is right, finally we have a professional hockey league in North America where the women can be treated like professionals, something that we spoke about theoretically on this podcast for a while, since its inception, and finally we get to talk about it IRL. And in real life, we had a draft, 15 rounds by the six teams in the league, the original six, with 90 of the top players in the game signing contracts, taking photos, shaking hands, hearing their name called, hearing fans at the CBC atrium cheering for them, which was awesome to see. Also awesome to see that the league is backed with some finance and some money, something that Sadly, female sports leagues have struggled with in the past. They're funded by Los Angeles Dodgers co-owners Mark and Kimberl Walter. They connected with the great Billie Jean King to help get this off the ground by buying the Premier Hockey Federation and essentially combining that with what was the PWHPA. And also you have a founding partner in Canadian Tire who's done a lot of good work in our country in providing resources for amateur sport. They have moved around their investment, given the Hockey Canada scandal, and have committed to make sure that 50% of their investment in sport goes to women. Well, this is a great step in that direction. So shout out to Canadian Tire for doing essentially what our corporate sector has lacked in this country for a long time, and hopefully other Fortune 500 companies follow suit. But now it's time to talk about the league and the players and what players will be playing and where they'll be playing and when. Each team is going to have a 23-player roster, but a minimum of 28 players going to camp. So we're filling out rosters, but there will be cuts. Camp will open in November, so not too far from now. And it starts, though, with a great understanding with those players having a ratified collective bargain agreements so they know exactly what they're walking into during camp and what they'll be making. The salaries will range from anywhere from thirty-five to 80000 per year based off of what has been reported. Now, to start, after we get out of camp, each team will play a 24-game schedule, which will in some part overlap with the Women's World Championships in April with the playoffs expected to be in June. Next year, that schedule will expand to 32 games with the season starting as early as November. But I certainly want to talk about how we got here, its importance, and where we might be going moving forward. We'll catch up with a woman who deserves a lot of the credit for helping us get here, and that's Jane Hefford, later in the episode. But let's start with Ian Kennedy and put the spotlight on the players, those who heard their names called during the draft and those who are still waiting to get a call. Let's go deep on the PWHL 
How good does that sound? Let's talk to Ian right now. Before we look forward on the PWHL, I want to look backwards a bit. When the purchase of the PHF and the potential future of one league was announced, to me, the reaction was somewhat binary. People were on one side overjoyed and excited, and there are other people who felt, well, wait a minute, what does this mean for all of the players in the PHF? We've had some time removed from it, so thus far with players signing and with a draft uh, being made, what has this meant for players of the uh, PHF, specifically the ones that had contracts? Well, it definitely has meant a lot of uncertainty, a lot of life changes, uh, for many, it, it will result in them losing their positions or their jobs, uh, major pay cuts perhaps for for others. Uh, but for some, it is the realization of a larger dream to have this one league together. And uh, one of the most uh, uh, impactful quotes that I heard from some of the post-draft media was from uh, Daryl Watts, who was drafted by Ottawa. And Watts, of course, signed the record-setting $150,000 contract with the Toronto Six of the PHF. And when she was asked about the pay cut, um, she basically stated that it's priceless to be able to play alongside the best players in the world. Uh, And so there's some truth to that, but it still has uh, really upended a lot of families, people that put uh, leases or bought homes. Um, So it's, it's created that division because there were some really strong fans of the PHF. There were really strong fans of the PWHPA. Um, There was a group that loved women's hockey in general, but it has been divided. And I think there's, there's still a period of healing to come uh, until the puck really drops in January. And then I think that some of that past issue will stay in the past. There were some that were concerned there would be a bit of favoritism to players in the PWHPA in relation to players of the PHF based off of, you know, conventional draft boards. And have you noticed that trend at all? Well, we we did see more PHF players selected in the draft than uh, PWHPA, but also uh, when you tack on the numbers of the free agent signings, the 18 players that signed before the draft, the PWHPA um, takes back that lead. I don't think we saw a large amount of players selected that people looked at and said, huh, that player shouldn't have been chosen. You know, there might have been a few, but in any draft board, uh, that's going to take place. What we did see was some very long-standing PHF players not selected that I don't think anyone would have anticipated would have remained outside of the league. Uh, Madison Packer, uh, Mikaela Grant-Mentis, uh, Kaylee Fratkin. There's so, there were some real long-term players that uh, I think most people had within their top 50 or 60 on the draft board. Uh, that slipped through. Of course, they'll have an opportunity to, to sign or make teams uh, in free agency. Uh, Jonna Albers being another one from Minnesota that was a real head-scratcher. Um, so did we see some very big names from the PHF left off of that draft board? Absolutely. Uh, can we unequivocally say for sure what the reasoning behind that was? 
Uh, no, you're definitely going to have fans that will say bias and, and all those things. But uh, truly, I think at this point, those general managers have gone into the phase where they're competitive, they want to win, and they're looking at a number of factors, probably in that draft, most specifically positional needs of filling, uh, you know, not just the best prospects available, but but people that can play left wing or right shot defenders. Um, so I, I think that most of those questions were laid to rest, but there's definitely some people out there that are still concerned uh, and rightfully so, because it's it's never easy to combine two leagues, especially when um, one probably has more. Uh, there there are definitely more people from the PWHPA in decision making roles right now um, than there was from the PHF. There's such a focus, obviously, on players, but you know, there is support staff and coaches and general managers. Other members of the PHF infrastructure. What's the percentage of them that? been able to find dry land whether it's within the pwhl or just in the sport more broadly well there's uh some people like the director of communications paul Krotz, who served the same role uh in the phf that he's serving here uh, we did think that there would be a larger role for reagan carey who was the commissioner of the phf uh truly was the one that was driving any positive growth within that league and uh, she right now is serving as a special advisor to the board in the, in the PWHL, which I'm not really sure what that entails at the moment, but she's kind of gone off the radar a little bit. Um, but there were a lot of the coaches and general managers from the PHF, uh, many of which I think people anticipated would have a role in the new league. Uh, a couple of prominent names like uh, Geraldine Heaney and Angela James, legends of the game that Ted uh, just coached and GM'd the Toronto six to a championship that uh, were not obviously brought on. We had some ex NHLers, Colt Nor, Almara, who uh, of course weren't, uh, weren't scooped up in the, uh, the coaching roles for the, the PWHL yet. So we have seen definitely um, most of the coaches have come from the PWHPA, but that doesn't mean that uh, they're not very qualified. I think that they, the selections for coaches was uh, excellent. I don't think that there's any coach in this league that uh, you would look at and say they don't belong here. They're all professionals with uh, incredible resumes that are going to do fantastic jobs. You know, people like Carla McLeod and Corey Chevery. Um, and Chevery coached in the, the PWHPA last year. Carla McLeod obviously was a U Sports coach and the head coach of Czechia's national team. Um, so there's just a, a really great lineup of people. And uh, so I'm hoping, you know, that people can see that the people that are being ho- uh, hired are qualified and deserve to be there as well. We look at this, again, you know, somewhat close-mindedly and looking at PHF versus PWHPA or United States players versus uh, Canadian players. But this is best on best. So naturally there's an international aspect to it. What are the international players uh, that could make a factor in a league? And is there potentially a a barrier of entry for some international players because they're locked into contracts in leagues abroad? Absolutely. There's a barrier at the moment for at least one to two years. Uh, Probably the, the most uh, open example right now is Lena 
Lundblom, who was uh, drafted 90th overall by Montreal, uh, still under contract with Moto in the SDHL, which is Sweden's top professional league. It's the, the other elite women's hockey league in the world, uh, aside from the PWHL. Uh, she was drafted, but the Swedish Ice Hockey Federation has said that uh, it would be against their rules, making her ineligible for national team competition, and that she would be breaking Swedish contract law if she left the league this season. So there's a player that was drafted that will have to stay in Sweden for one more year, but the SDHL itself is filled with probably an entire team's worth of players that would be not just contributors, but standouts in the PWHL. Uh, Finland's Petra Nieminen, uh, Jenny Hirokoski. There's a long list of players in that league, uh, and some of the Czech players, uh, uh, Michaela Pedslova, uh, Daniela Pedslova. There's just a, a list of people that could be in this league right now that aren't, and that will take some time as their contracts expire in Europe. But we do have some really talented European players that had been in the NCAA before or in the the PHF. We have five uh, members of Czechia's national team that, of course, are back-to-back bronze medalists in the World Championships that were drafted this week. Uh, Alina Mueller went uh, third overall to Boston, and she is widely considered uh, probably one of the top ten, if not top five players in the world from Switzerland. So we, we do have a mix, but it is going to take some time for this to truly become the best-on-best best in the entire world. Right now, we definitely have best-on-best in North America, plus a handful of Europeans. But uh, we're probably two full seasons away from being able to entice all of those top superstars from across the globe uh, into this league. So when it comes to the actual draft uh, that happened, first, just take me through. You've seen a lot uh, in this sport at various levels. What did you make of... The show, the spectacle, the the fans, the moment that was created based off of the draft. I thought it was spectacular just to see the multiple camera angles, the the analysis pick by pick of the players' skill sets and uh, backgrounds. It was uh, the post interviews of each player and the people that were up there presenting, whether it was Billie Jean King or other hockey icons like Vicky Sunahara, uh, we really did see quite the show put on. Uh, Tessa Bonhomme and Cassie Campbell were there uh, announcing and, and emceeing the event. But the, the screens, the, the graphics, the, the fan coverage, the media coverage was unprecedented. We, uh, having covered women's hockey for quite some time now, uh, we just haven't seen the amount of media in scrums or in interviews or doing Zoom calls that we have been seeing recently. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest items that's going to help make this league sustainable and grow. And uh, the draft itself was very well produced. Uh, it was quite an event that meant you could just see the emotion in the players' faces, their families as they were getting up to take pictures. Um reminiscent of any National Hockey League draft or any professional sports draft that we've seen in the past uh, on a grand scale. And to see it televised on so many different networks was uh, fabulous. So I, I think they, they really knocked that one out of the park in terms of the professionalism and making that first big in-person event uh, something to remember. The thing I'll remember 
from the draft is evidently defense wins championships because we saw a run <laughs> of defenders early. I think we knew that the draft started at two, uh, which m- many drafts do, but that was what we expected. But did you expect to see so many defenders come off the board early? And is that more a testament to supply and demand and that they're in a six-team league is going to be enough offensive firepower to go around, but you really want to make sure you have you know quality defense? What we saw in that draft is indicative of a few things. First of all, there was such a goaltending depth that there really was almost no need to select multiple goalies. Most teams did, but the need wasn't really there. Uh, and the same thing with the forward depth. We had we know that there are very qualified, talented, professional goal scorers that didn't even get drafted. But what there was was a distinct shortage in quality defenders. So I think we saw that run on defenders so quickly in the early two rounds because um, if you missed out, you were really going to be shorthanded. I, I think that most teams were able to grab two elite defenders. Uh, but beyond that, it's really going to be defense by committee. Um, there's not going to be too many superstars uh, jumping out of the gates. Uh, someone like Sophie Jakes from Ohio State that won the Patty Kazmaier Award last year uh, would be a key example of a young rookie that will jump into the league that should make an impact. Uh, Ashton Bell as well that was selected to Ottawa. Uh, but the shortage of defenders that are at that elite level, um, that's a real notable gap in this league. So we, uh, if it weren't for the quality of goaltenders, I might predict right now that we're going to see a lot of high-scoring games based on uh, the fact that second-line matchups against second-pairing defenders will be a bit of a mismatch in many cases. But uh, it was definitely supply and demand, as you said. That was probably the best way to describe it. Uh, not a lot of high-quality supply, uh, but tons of demand. Well, based off that, and we saw some different approaches in terms of both the free agent selections for teams and then, you know, how that contributed what they did in the draft. Still early, but whose team do you like? Who do you think came away with a great free agent period, a, a great draft and set up nicely, you know, before they finish the back end of the rosters in free agency? I think it's pretty obvious when you look at the, the six teams that three jumped out to me, Montreal, Toronto, and Boston, uh, the firepower that those three were able to collect, uh, both up front and on the back end, uh, there's going to be a lot of exciting hockey coming out of those places. And I mean, immediately when you, in Toronto, when you sign players like Sarah Nurse and Blair Turnbull and Renata Foss, and then you can pick up, uh, you know, the Jocelyn LaRock and, and uh, Natalie Spooners of the world in the draft, you're, you're building basically what we know as kind of top six Canadian national team lines right there. The same thing can be said in Montreal with uh, any time you put Marie-Philippe Poulin on the ice. Uh, but the, what they did deeper in the draft, stealing some of those P- or PHF stars, uh, which Montreal was really a team that dipped into the PHF talent earlier and more often than others, um, was impressive that they, they obviously had some kind of um, scouting knowledge of all of the pool uh, that was really uh, deeper than most franchises. In Boston, I mean, uh, 
you had Alina Mueller there with Hillary Knight, with Megan Keller, um, you know, with Sophie Jakes on the back end, and and PHF MVP Lauren Gable, and it's an exciting, exciting roster of people um, for both of those. And and Boston, gosh, they in net to they got American starter Aaron Frankel, and then they grabbed uh, World Championship uh, top goaltender Emma Soderberg from Sweden. So they're they're stacked top to bottom, back to front. Uh, but that's not to say that we should count out the other teams. I think there's a lot of uh, the Minnesota pride in, in uh, their local identity over there is fantastic. Uh, I think that, that they'll really help with the on-ice chemistry quickly. Uh, I would never count out uh, perhaps the best free agent pickup in the entire league was Ottawa signing uh, Carla McLeod as their head coach. We've seen what she could do with uh, with Czechia that was obviously outmatched against some clubs in international competition, but she's just pushed them over the edge. And uh, New York has some real wild cards out there uh, that are going to play a different style of hockey. Alex Carpenter and, and Abby Roke are, um, you know, in-your-face kind of players. And then, I, in my opinion, I think that one of the biggest wild cards in the entire draft was uh, the goaltender that New York drafted, which is uh, Corinne Schroeder, who was the PHF MVP or goaltender of the year last year, excuse me, and uh, was also the best goaltender, in my opinion, from Hockey Canada's recent camp, the only goalie to not allow a, a goal in the two games that she played. Well, I love that you mentioned Hockey Canada's recent national team selection camp because uh, I want to get your perspective on that as I know you're covering it as well. One, I think, not so much now, but moving forward, I love the fact that there's one league from an international perspective also because, you know, it could be a bit tough to evaluate players playing at different levels and different leagues, and now you'll still obviously have that with the NCAA, but the fact that all the pros will be in one league will help that conversation in terms of who should be representing Canada or the United States uh, internationally. But we talk about Team Canada players as if it's a fixed thing, but that roster is constantly fluid. Who did you see in that selection camp maybe really pushing for um, a a roster spot or making an impact moving forward that maybe Canadians um, aren't as aware of? I think there's a number of players from that camp that were really impressive. I mentioned Schroeder. Um, you know, some of the goal-scoring players that I think we're going to see have really good PWHL seasons are players like Lauren Gable and Victoria Bach, who probably, if it was based strictly on their ability to be a top-six goal-scoring player, would already be on Team Canada's roster. But I think that Team Canada builds that roster with a specific mindset of we need to be Team USA in a 3-2 game. So they're going to pick some players with different elements to their game as well. Um, but one young defender that I think really stood out there was uh, Sarah Swiderski. She plays at Clarkson University. Fantastic skater, sees the ice well, was the youngest player in camp born in 2004, the only birth year from that to, that was there. I think that she's probably closer to Team Canada's national team than many people would uh, would give her credit for. And the same thing could be said to some of the players that were up front. I really liked the game of Julia Gosling that was up there, big power forward that uh, I think is going to make an impact in the future. Um, just so many, I mean, the, the constant flow of players coming in is what's really impressive. But there's one player I want to mention that's not even at that camp, that's speaking with Hockey Canada's brass, uh, is a young player by the name of Chloe Primerano. Uh, 2007-born player who's playing in Kelowna, B.C. right now. 
drafted by the Vancouver Giants of the WHL. This is a phenom player that despite the fact that she wasn't at Hockey Canada's selection camp due to her age, which is a 2007 birth, um, she is probably the closest thing that Canada has to a national team superstar coming up. And uh, talking to that brass, I don't think they're going to waste any time bringing her there as rapidly as they can, probably while she's still a teenager and she will immediately step into a top four role like a player like Carolyn Harvey from, uh, from the USA did, but with even greater impact because she is just a special player um, that probably gets left out of the conversation. Like we, we talked about Nila Lapusinova from uh, Slovakia in the last year quite a bit, but Chloe Primorano uh, is just the real deal that Canadians need to know now. This Canadian's feeling really old because when you tell me that there's a player born in 2007 when I was graduating university, uh, that just doesn't sound right. But uh, it doesn't. No, I get it. it well, it, there are a bunch of uh, free agents uh, left still to be claimed. Who, for you, is the top that list now that we're coming out of the cooling off period, if you will, uh, that you know, will be priority? Uh, undrafted players that can make an impact? Well, first of all, Toronto. We always love a goaltending controversy in Toronto, but they are the only mm-hmm. team right now with one goaltender. Um, and that's not a problem based on the players that are out there. First of all, there's two recent U.S. national team goaltenders, Matty Rooney and Alex Cavallini, that are available. Uh, but the real name for me that that I think that Toronto might be targeting uh, would be Nuarati, who, of course, is a Finnish superstar, is a 100% lock to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, a little bit older, which is probably why she wasn't picked right off the bat here. Uh, but she was signed to play for the Metropolitan Riveters in the PHF this year. And I know from speaking to her that she's ready to go. Um, her, her game has not dipped at all. And to be pushing Kristen Campbell in net in Toronto... Uh, as a veteran backup, I can't imagine there being any better solution there uh, that's still on the market. But other names, again, uh, Madison Packer, longtime captain of the Metropolitan Riveters, second all-time leading scorer um, in the PHF. Similarly, Jonna Albers from uh, Minnesota just kills with speed. She is so fast and so talented. Uh, Allie Toontrum, Uh, played for Boston and Minnesota in the PHF. Again, just a star player with so much speed that can uh, jump up into a top six or can be one of those pace-pushing players uh, in the bottom six. But one of the names that I think is really going to be hotly sought after is uh, Kaylee Fratkin, who played for the Boston Pride last year, uh, was moving to the Metropolitan Riveters. She's a defender that adds that X factor to the game. Super tough to play against, physical, in your face, going to shut things down, but can also contribute offensively. And to me, she was probably the most uh, prevalent draft omission that there was there in the entire draft, other than perhaps uh, the last name that I'm going to mention, which is Michaela Grant Mentis. Uh, prior to Daryl Watts, she held the record for the largest all time women's hockey contract. Uh, a great goal scorer, previous MVP of the PHF played for the Buffalo Buttes last year, can flat-out score and can play a physical depth role if needed as well. Um, just going to be a great player for whoever picks her up. Lastly, 
I love your perspective because it's something that was announced and we just took it um, to be the case, but didn't really discuss it. I love your perspective on where the teams actually preside, the six cities that they chose. Do you think these six make sense? Was there uh, a city left off that list that you thought uh, would have made sense? What was your initial reaction when you saw the original six? I think the initial reaction was that they were relatively logical. Um, New York is the real question mark. I think we've seen a little bit less hype and interest from media in that location. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that there's still been quite a debate whether or not they're going to play in uh, Long Island, in Brooklyn, in uh, Connecticut, in Albany, New York. There's really going to be quite a tour, I believe, with that franchise and that uh, might help, might hurt, who knows. Uh, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, very obvious, fantastic. We've seen a really uh, amazing response from Ottawa fans. Uh, of course, Minnesota is the state of hockey, so no doubt there. Boston with the, the bean pot competition of all the NCAA teams and the, the girls' hockey programs there, again, a no-brainer. But one of the things that I uh, was wondering about leading into it all is if they would stay Eastern Seaboard, uh, connected because I do think that there's immense opportunity for a city like Seattle, for Las Vegas, for LA, for Vancouver to have franchises in the future for a West Coast expansion because those are the types of cities where we've seen record-setting attendances for Canadian and U.S. rivalry series games and uh, neutral site games. We saw the PWHPA host their um, their championship weekend in L.A. last year. So uh, I was a little bit surprised that there's not any kind of out-of-this-geographic region, uh, but I get the fact that for logistics, they're probably trying to keep travel uh, tight and teams as close together as possible right now. Um, but I think in the future, Chicago and West will be uh, some real places to watch. Well, can't wait to watch for that expansion. Hopefully, comes off the heels of successful first season. We know you'll be covering it in the first season and beyond. Thank you so much for your perspective and your continued voice in the game. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Ian Kennedy. You can find his work on Twitter at Ian Kennedy CK or on the Hockey News. Also find his writing in written form with his book, On Account of Darkness. So if you appreciate his work, and he does a lot of great work in this very space, then make sure you don't just give him a follow. You also give him a purchase as well. I'm going to take a break. After the break, we will catch up with, as I mentioned, a person who literally shepherded the entire sport to this place. Jane Heffer. Next, I'm going to eat. Brian. I'm Clifton Brian. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Gondi with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma and Granddad. She has a very long title, but even it can't describe all that she has done. She is the PWHL's Senior Vice President of Hockey Operations. She knows the game inside and out. 
seven world championship gold medals for Canada, a hockey Hall of Famer. But I honestly think what she's doing as a builder will be her lasting legacy. I want to get her perspective on what this process has been like, how she came to the very intentional choices that she and the broader group made, and what choices are still to be made. The leader of the PWHL on Going Deep right now. So, Jana, before we get into the nuts and bolts on everything that has recently gone on with the newly formed league and what will, I want to go back and touch base on emotionally how this has been for you and what that feels like because I imagine that for the last couple of years, all people wanted to talk to you about was question, well, how close are we? And how are things looking? And do you think it's going to be sooner rather than later? And one of those people peppering you with questions whenever they saw you was me. So I imagine that it wasn't just me. Uh, To not answer those questions anymore, to have something tangible, what has that been like? Yeah, it's uh, it's been amazing to be able to actually come out to the market with, you know, concrete information and certainty about the future of the women's game. Um, the last four years have certainly been, I, you know, I, I'd like to call it a roller coaster in many ways. There were incredible highs and really positive things that happened. And there was some pretty tough times, too. And, and despite, you know, the questions around where are we and when is it going to happen, you know, there were times when it got more negative than that. And, you know, the players were considered to be greedy or why couldn't they just get along and all these sort of questions that, that painted us potentially in a different light. And um, so now to be able to, you know, have one league moving forward, to have a league that has a CBA in place that is going to protect the players, that's going to offer them services and support that they've never had in any league before. And to be able to do it in such a big and professional way, um, it, it was it was an incredible day on Monday at the draft. And um, it was emotional in many ways. It was a proud moment. Um, and to just see the looks on the players' faces, to see the emotion from not only them, but their families was something that was just, it was so rewarding, I think, after this you know long journey we've been through. And it's been much longer than four years, but certainly these last four years with the PWHPA were, were really intense and um, really to see that come to fruition in a big way was something that I think we all just felt really good about. What was the toughest moment? Um, I think trying to ensure the players that we were going to get there. Um, the unity of that player group along the way was the key to our success, but it was also, you know, the one thing that could have been lost along the way. So, you know, being behind the scenes and understanding the work that was happening and the people that we were engaging with, I always believed that we were going to get here. Um, of course, you have your seeds of doubt, but for the most part, I always knew that this was going in the right direction and we had the right people at the table. But for players that don't have that much detail and, and were asked to sort of, you know, just believe in what we're trying to create and believe that we can get there and trust in the process and trust in the people, that was probably the most challenging part. Uh, but it also ended up being the key to us getting there. So now that you're here, I imagine it would be daunting because you have somewhat of a blank canvas in terms of how you build it, why you're making the decisions that you're making, and you want to move with some certainty based off of you know data and fact. But it still must 
be difficult to build something from scratch. Walk me through the process of making the decisions that you've made before you announce publicly. Well, I think the underlying fact of all this is that we are on an incredibly expedited timeline. And would we love to have two years to launch a league? Of course we would. We see teams in other leagues, whether it's the Seattle Kraken or Angel City, and, you know, they're they're being announced two years out. And so they're able to put a foundation in place. And that's just a team, let alone a league. So um, I think that's the first acknowledgement that we're doing this fast, but we know that we need to. Um, you know, the, the commitment to these players is that we'll be up and running in this hockey season. Uh, we've been able to do, I think, an incredible amount of work uh, since this commitment has been made, which has really only been a couple uh, couple months. But, you know, the people we've brought to the table, our team continues to grow. We just had our first set of league meetings following the draft. The draft itself, um, you know, it's it really had a number of weeks to put that event on. And, and anyone that's done events knows that that's incredibly, incredibly fast. But I can honestly say walking out of that draft that if we had nine months, I wouldn't have done anything different. So we just have this incredible team of people that are energized by the opportunity, uh, that want to get to work, that are the type of people that just get work done. So we have all kinds of things we need to do. We, we're putting rules and regs, regulations in place for the league. We have you know, video review. We have broadcast conversations. We have medical protocols and the list goes on and on. Um, and it's, it's daunting at times, but I also know that we have incredible people around the table that are in this to uh, make this a success. And it's not about roles or titles. It's just about believing in what we're building. And that's a powerful thing. You talked about other teams, other leagues, whether it's in the women's sports space or not during this four year plus period. Were there things you learned, things that you took notes on, tried to apply uh, in building this league? Yeah, I think there's a lot on the, you know, building of a brand that we saw specifically, you know, the two teams I mentioned, I think in the Seattle Kraken and Angel City and the NWSL, incredible stories of how they launched and the success of the brand that they launched with and how they've been able to maintain that. So those, so the business side of that. Uh, and I think we've also seen the pitfalls of other leagues, whether that's, you know, player treatment, um, you know, player safety. Uh, obviously, we've seen what's happened in the culture of hockey, specifically here in Canada in the last, you know, few years. And so those are things that we know we also have a chance to get right from the outset. And the CBA is a big part of that. Um, it creates certainty for the players around working conditions and player safety and uh, you know, how we deal with issues when they do come up. So we have a big focus on the culture of this league and it was a player led movement and it continues to be a player led um, initiative that we all want to create a really player friendly league and one that protects them and supports them. And um, so uh, we've taken a lot of lessons, um, I think from other leagues and we'll continue to do so. We don't, we don't have all the answers, but we can certainly look at best practices. You talked about the CBA salaries. Every player in every league, if you ask them, thinks that they're a bit underpaid. And that's in a scenario where you have fixed costs and you have revenue coming in. Again, you're starting this from scratch. How did you figure out where the salaries necessarily should be to start, given that there isn't really you know, a market to create that amount? Yeah, it's, you know, I think it's one of the unique 
parts about this league and this story is that it started with the players. And when I was leading the PWHPA for the last four years, it was about two years ago that we started to engage with Deloitte and start working on a business plan and a strategy. And uh, so we had a number of sessions and it started with, you know, what does this league look like? What are our aspirations for this league? What is a reasonable salary number? And this number of a 55 average came from the players because the players of the PWHPA understood that the sustainability of the league was a key factor. And of course, everyone wants to make more money. There's no doubting that. But I can honestly say that to these players, the priority was the professionalism and the resources, the facilities, the infrastructure. Over time, salaries, of course, we hope will grow. But this was really about all those other things. And there's no better example than that, you know, as, as part of the CBA negotiations. And, um, you know, I wasn't a part of those directly, but the players wanted more games. And the negotiating, the other side of the table was saying, you know, you want more games, but you want to be paid the same. Like, that's not what you see in professional sport, but that's the priority piece to these athletes is they want a legitimate professional league. Salaries is, is actually a little bit further down the list than the professionalism and the infrastructure that surrounds it. Well, one of the, especially in a short timeline, hurdles to playing more games is you've got to find ice, uh, which is can be difficult to anyone who works in hockey in this country at times would know. The decision in terms of where to play, what venues make sense, what was that process like and how did you, how did you come to the decisions? So we looked at, first of all, understanding what we think our market is. And, and we love, you know, the idea of sort of a three to 10,000 seat building. And that's a, that's a wide range, of course. But facilities don't, aren't easy to come by. So, you know, at the low end, we're going to be in that sort of 3,000. The high end, you know, will even be higher than 10. But that's not really the place in an ideal world we want to be. Um, but we, then we looked into markets. And we had to find a market that had the right facilities and that's both game facilities and practice facilities that provided the type of professionalism that we've promised and committed to the players so that's you know permanent dressing rooms it's coaches rooms it's access to medical support in the building you know all of those things and then you've got your game facilities and then you want to find partners that are in this with you that want to support this at the local level Um, and you want to find a market that has what we believe a strong hockey fan base and people that are going to be excited about that. So, uh, you know, it was really a bit of a puzzle to put all those things together and find the right size facility. And, and we acknowledge that, you know, we may not get it perfect in year one, um, but we're, we're going to get to perfect. We, we all have that belief and we're going to, on these tight timelines, we're going to do what we can to make sure um, the professionalism can never drop. But, you know, we'll, we'll find our way and find a, a real comfortable place as we go. You mentioned markets, and what struck me when I saw the original six announced and looked at them at a map was it was heavy on the eastern seaboard, minus Minnesota, obviously. Was that a strategic decision? Was travel a potential a consideration, or did that just bear out to be the best places uh, to start with six? Well, we started out with the original model that the PWHPA created. It was a very northeast uh, centered league, which in our mind was was cost centric, uh, and then as we started to work with the Walter Group and and the the new modeling that was starting to happen, uh, we we determined there was actually a lot of support on the West Coast 
um, very progressive, very supportive of women's professional sport. And, you know, started to get excited about opportunities there. Uh, and then it sort of came back together again towards more Northeast based. And I think the, the concept is that with six teams, um, you can't have one on the West Coast that's a competitive disadvantage. So you'd need to have at least two, maybe three. And then when we started to looking at the facilities and the market and what we thought, you know, those real core hockey fan bases were, that's how we landed on, on these markets. It's nice that the travel is is a little more cost efficient, but that was never the leading factor for us. It was about getting the markets right with the right people. And, you know, Minnesota state of hockey, uh, it to us became a, a state that we just couldn't ignore. Um, it would have been easy to put another, you know, maybe Northeast place so that we could bus more often or whatever the case may be. But again, that wasn't the goal here. The goal was to make sure we get these original six, right. And there's a concrete understanding of what the first two seasons will look like based off of, as you mentioned, less games in a shorter season in year one, that expands in year two, more neutral site scenario in year one, and, and maybe more travel in year two. What are any thoughts beyond that, or is the focus on the first two seasons exclusively? Yeah, I mean, the focus obviously is on season one and just you know getting the league launched and making sure that we do it in a really successful way uh year two ramps up based on the cba and understanding that you know we have some more time to look at potentially pushing the schedule back if we decide that's the right move to make there's a lot of considerations there around broadcast schedules and venue availability uh do we want to be starting a season in the fall or do we like a january start so those are decisions we'll have to make along the way but per the cba there will be more games in year two and then I think, you know, we'll learn along the way and, and we'll get to by year three, you know, we'll have a lot more data points and, and real certainty, I think, in, in what this league will continue to look like and how we're going to grow and how we're going to scale it. You mentioned broadcast, and I was happy to see that the draft was covered on multiple outlets here in Canada, and there was great exposure in the United States as well. It's obviously going to be a big piece uh, moving forward as you look to get that right you know, for me, as I look across the industry, there are rights holders and then there are partners uh, from a broadcast perspective. Mm-hmm. What makes sense in terms of values uh, for the league in, in terms of broadcast on multiple platforms? Well, I think you know, visibility is, is the key piece that we need to be able to provide uh, for our sport to grow, uh, for people to get to know our athletes, understand the stories and fall in love with, with what we're creating. And I think to your point, you know, having the draft where we had so many media partners working together under this idea that this is important and it's historic and you want to be a part of it. And, you know, I hope that I hope that continues as we go. I'm not you know, I'm not the lead on on media and broadcast, but we've had really positive conversations with a lot of groups that want to be a part of this. And and in our minds, you know, we'd love to find a way to include a lot of people, because at the end of the day, our success is going to be built on people being able to see the games consistently, know, know the stories of the players, the stories of the teams. And um, we're going to have to lean on our, our broadcast and media partners for that, to do that storytelling with us. And, and that's an exciting piece because we think we have so much to offer. And um, so we hope we have multiple partners in the space. You might have a little bit more leverage in uh, leaning on them in that conversation because you have the backing of a foundational corporate partner 
in Canadian Tire, who's obviously been supporter of hockey, but have really put their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting women's hockey and really, you know, diversity efforts in sports more broadly. What does that relationship with Canadian Tire allow you to do uh, that you wouldn't be able to if you're starting a league without it? Yeah, I think they've really scaled up their support over the last number of years. And even last season with the PWHPA, they've, they came in in a big way and allowed us to execute an all-star weekend that we never would have had planned or been able to do without their support. Um, you know, they supported, you know, regional costs within markets to get things going. And now this year as part of the league, they're a partner that, you know, wants to sit at the table with us, that wants to be a part of the growth, telling the stories, um, creating the visibility, and those are all things, you know, based on, you know, what we just chatted about around broadcast, that, that we need partners that are going to support that as well. Storytelling is the best way to to engage people and make them fall in love with the mission and fall in love with the athletes. And um, so they're going to do a number of those things. And they've continued to just show that that they want to have a social impact. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that this is this is about changing hockey. It's about changing women's hockey. But it's so much bigger than that, too. And, uh, you know, I, I never lose sight of that because I, I have young kids right now that are this next generation. And and they see things differently and they feel differently um, than the traditional sports fan. And so we have an opportunity to capture that and um, create some real societal change. And, and that's, to me, what's really exciting, uh, that, that women's hockey will be an avenue to that. And, and partners like Canadian Tire and the ones that will follow and join um, they're going to be a part of telling that story too. You talk about having young kids, and uh, mine are even younger than yours, but they've certainly changed my perspective. Has there been along this ride, knowing that you're creating a league really more so for the classmates of your kids uh, than really the, even the players uh, who are drafted right now, given your, your experience as a parent, has there been a decision or perspective or approach that you took that maybe if you didn't have that experience with the youth aspect of, of sport and young people are a country, you, you wouldn't have made or you wouldn't have even been aware of? I, th- I think it's more so when I think of the impact we can have just away from the game. Um, you know, a lot of times in women's hockey, you know, people say, oh, you got to get all the little girls to the game. And that, that's a, that is a big part of our market, but it's not our only market. And, you know, I have an eight-year-old son who loves every sport and – you know, he'll sit and watch the Women's World Cup like he does the Men's World Cup, and it doesn't matter to him. If there's no difference, uh, he gets to meet some of these female hockey players, and he thinks they are, you know, incredible, just like he does Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid. And so when I see that, like, I, it just helps me understand how we're changing way more than, than just hockey and way more than just sport. And so I think that's just something that I kind of keep in the back of my mind as, as I go through this and, and try to understand that it's, it's not just young female hockey players that we're trying to, to, to help through this. They're a big part of it, but we want, when we look around an arena and, and we have a sold out venue, we're going to see young girls, young boys. We're going to see parents. We're going to see, you know, young affluent corporate folks. We're going to see retired folks. We, we have a market to tap. Um, because we're going to create an engaging product and, and a great story and, and hopefully do things the right way. So I think it's the society angle that I continue to come back to based on you know my experiences as a parent. So I know the athlete side of you wants 
to be able to measure success and have wins or have losses and the business side of you and wants key performance indicators and strategic objectives. So in year one, what do goals look like? What are those you know, tangible things that uh, you're, you're hoping to be able to strive for and, and measure? Well, I think for top of mind for us is always the professionalism and the player experience. So ensuring that we raise the bar and, and what we did through the draft this week was really set a new standard for the way we are going to behave, the way we're going to come to market, the way we're going to provide an experience for players. And, and everything we've heard, you know, we've set the, the bar high and we'll continue to go from that. So I think success for us from a player perspective is ensuring that their experience in this league is the most professional experience they've had to date. And we'll continue to build on that. Um, as it relates to engaging fans, um, success to me would be ensuring that our attendance continues to grow. Now, we're a startup league. We're not expecting to have sold-out crowds at every game. That's just an unrealistic goal. But the goal is to create a product that is unique and innovative and creative and a product that when people see a game, they say, when's the next game? Because you don't want to miss it. So how do we continue to see that fan growth over time and, and not only measure it by you know, a sold out venue because we, you know, again, we understand our position in the market and that we are growing. So I think that's a big piece. I think how do we engage partners and provide value to them? And uh, this league will continue to grow with the support of partners and sponsors that want to be at the table. And again, want to help tell our story. So I would look at that as the growth there. Uh, And then, you know, as we continue to, to grow and work alongside the NHL has been incredibly supportive and, having their help around, you know, marketing and promotion, just being able to, to widen the fan base. It may not be in our six original markets and people that can sit in an arena and, and watch a game, but how do we, you know, really globally grow the women's game and engage people and get them to follow what we're doing. So all of that is, is different ways that I think I'll, I'll be measuring the success of this league, especially in the early years. I started by saying, you know, over this last period, you've gotten so many questions of where we're at. Sadly, I imagine you've probably got a lot of advice, much of it probably unsolicited. But has there been a piece of advice that you got from someone who has done something similar um, or, you know, empathetically could apply some of their learnings that really stuck out to you and, and was helpful? more about the the support and the people that you know are in your corner when you go through those those tough times or or the negativity that inevitably came along the way and um you know i think people that that were there to say you know this this is going to happen and you've got the right people and you know of course you go through the the process of a business plan and um, you know, the market analysis and all that stuff. And I, you know, learned an incredible amount through people in the industry. Um, but I think for me, it was more about that, you know, believing you're on the right path and having people there to say and, and acknowledge the progress we're made, you know, because sometimes when you're in it, you don't feel how much progress you're making. And then when you have people that, that understand how far you come in such a short period of time, I think that that really kept us going. And we continued to engage great people that wanted to see this evolve. So I think the support was maybe more so than, than the advice. And lastly, for me, selfishly, I was a little bit sad to see my PWHPA hoodie 
uh, in the closet and feel like this is like a relic. This is old now. This, and he's gonna have to update and you know find another piece of attire to you know showcase in my neighborhood that I'm a supporter. I wonder if, for you, what is the legacy of the PWHPA when we look back? Uh, what do you think it'll be? Well, it, it was a collection of players that courageously stood up and acknowledged that what was being done wasn't good enough. And there was a market out there to do more and to do better. Um, again, that four years with the PWHPA, I think, is probably the you know part of my career. And, you know, won Olympic gold medals, won world championships. But that I'm most proud of. It was meaningful. It's impactful. We've changed the game. We've changed, you know, society in some ways. And to be just, you know, a small part of that, that legacy, I, I hope will always live on. And um, the PWHPA has now, you know, turned into an official union with the PWHLPA. Uh, they just launched their new logo, and it's a silhouette of Kendall Coyne skating at the NHL All Star, you know, fastest skating competition in. It's just so symbol- symbolic of the people um, and the mission of this group. And uh, I-, I wish everyone could get to know these players and specifically the players that took on the bargaining and negotiated the CBA and Kendall Coyne Schofield, Hillary Knight, Brian Jenner, Sarah Nurse, Liz Knox, because they didn't compromise. You know, they were talking to one of the most proficient sport owners in the world uh, in these negotiations and his team and they didn't compromise on the things that they felt or knew that were incredibly important to these women. And again, it, was, it wasn't about salaries, but it was about the way they were treated. It was about housing. It was about pre and post meals for the athletes, about the professionalism that exists. And so this never would have happened. Uh, we never would be where we are today without that movement of the PWHPA. And um, so I'm, you know, just so proud to be a part of that. And I hope that legacy of that will continue to live on. So, don't give away the hoodie just yet because I think it's always going to be a really valuable piece. Okay, done. Um, listen, uh, the group of women certainly got together, uh, but they also got together and trusted you and followed your lead. So um, we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to you. And I don't know if anyone has gone into the Hockey Hall of Fame as a player and a builder, but given what you've built, uh, you definitely deserve that honor. So thank you for all you've done. Thank you for spending some time to walk us through it, and we look forward to watching what you continue to build. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Donovan. Thanks so much to Jaina, and make sure you don't just give the league a follow at the PWHL official or the PA at PWHLPA, but whatever team you think you'll be rooting for, give those accounts a follow as well. We don't have any team names right now, so the follows are quite simple. It's at PWHL underscore, and then said city, Ottawa, Toronto, New York, Boston, Minnesota, Montreal. I can't wait for puck to drop, and I'm so happy we're finally having conversations about a women's pro league in Canada. On behalf of show, we appreciate that you made it this far in the episode. Since you did, you must have liked it, so make sure to like, share, subscribe, follow, and leave a comment, especially if it's a nice one. Thanks for listening.